How and why do people disappear? If you brought somebody in to help you disappear, have you actually disappeared? We will deal with missing persons on a daily basis, so we're the national experts. Every year, over 300,000 reports of a missing person are made to the police. Even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're being watched. You'll go missing, and we'll allow it that you're never found. People set up We are perfectly capable of holding on to important secrets. Anything that you're doing, you're basically uh, leaving it your duly elected representatives have been consistently informed. Somebody going missing without a trace. I'm not sure. You're not looking for them. You're looking for the information they left behind. Hello, it's so exciting to be back again recording new episodes of Missing. Last year was an incredible experience. Thank you to everyone who took part in, downloaded, listened to, commented on, and spread the word about our series. In the first season of the show, we charted the course of a missing person search, talking to experts in the field, people involved in investigations, in the psychology of the disappeared, industry leaders in following the money trail, in technology, fingerprinting, facial recognition and more. We talked biometrics, psychopaths, surveillance cameras and historical precedents, and we focused in on that 1% that two and a half thousand people in the UK every year who vanish into the ether and are never seen again. So what's next? Well, over these three very special episodes of Missing, we're going into uncharted waters. In this first episode, I'm going to be talking about the lessons we learned from the first season, how it influenced the writing of my new book, Broken Heart, some of the baffling real-life missing persons cases that have proved the inspiration for the other novels in the series, and why what I found out during the course of making Missing both reassured me and absolutely terrified me. And then we dial it up again, in a special two-part episode, perhaps the biggest challenge I've faced yet during the course of making Missing. I'm going to pull together everything I've learned about missing people during the course of writing my novels and recording this series, and I'm going to disappear. As a team of experts try to find me, you'll be with me every step of the way as I record my thoughts, face the challenges of vanishing, and finally face down the question we've been asking since the very beginning. Is it really possible to disappear? I talked about the first season of Missing being both reassuring and terrifying, and one of the reasons for that was that, while it confirmed a lot of the things I already knew from my own research, at the same time it painted a more complex portrait of missing people than I could ever have imagined. The timing was interesting, though, because whilst recording Missing, I was writing my seventh David Raker novel, Broken Heart, and that, in many ways, became a lightning rod for what I learned. To talk to me a little more about that, and about the real-life cases that I've drawn inspiration from, I'm so excited to have Michael Carlson in the studio today, a broadcaster, writer and sports commentator, as well as a huge thriller reader. I was going to ask about the research you do for missing persons, but before we do that, how was the research on Broken Heart in terms of the film industry, the, the B-movie industry? Um, it's, it's a fascinating read. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, it's, you know, the book starts with the disappearance of a woman called Linda Corrin who drives out to a beauty spot on the Somerset coast, drives in in a car, the CCTV cameras catch her going in, but she never reappears. She completely vanishes into thin air. And what Raker discovers, you know, fairly quickly early on in the book is that Corin is was once married to a, a film director called Robert Hostelitz, who was back in the fifties something of a big deal in Hollywood. He was a very famous film noir director. He his one of his films won eight Oscars. And 
After that, there was some crisis in his life. The House of Un-American Activities, who were investigating communist activity in the film industry at that time, I wanted to you know, bring him before them. He fled the country, settled in the UK, and eventually met Corin. His career went off the cliff as a result, and he directed these really terrible horror movies in, in, in Europe during the 70s and 80s before dying in the middle of the 80s. So that's the backdrop to the book. And, and so it deals a lot with the film industry, as you, as you say. And, and um, for me, that was not a stress at all to uh, research because I'm a massive film fan, always have been. And, and this is a book really that has been bubbling away in the background for me for, for quite a long time because I've always wanted to write a book like this about the film industry. It was really just finding the right moment for it and the right thing to chat about. And, and being a big, you know, I mean, as a kid in my teens and early 20s, I was a big horror movie fan uh, as well. So, you know, a lot of this stuff is not, it's not, I hadn't even, didn't even really need to go out and research it. I kind of already knew it, you know, and, you know, knowing about film noir and stuff, you know, having to go back and watch Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard and some of those was not not much of a stress, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and what's wonderful, and I, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, but at the end of the book, you give his filmography as yeah. if this was IMDb. And not only are the titles all completely believable, the studios are as well, and his television work when his career floundered and he was doing, he worked on some of my favorite shows. Uh, the Defenders was and Judd for the Defense were both really good, you know, legal shows, uh, yeah. crime shows. And so I, I, I appreciated the depth of research that oh, must have gone in there. Good. Yeah. I mean, that sort of stuff was not obviously, uh, didn't come as naturally to me because I wasn't, oh, before I started research, I wasn't even aware of um, Judd for the defense, you know, but um, when I was looking for TV shows in the 60s, I mean, obviously everyone's heard of the Twilight Zone and before that, slightly before that early 60s, Alfred, the Alfred Hitchcock hour and those sorts of stuff. But it was really interesting going back and seeing what was on US TV at that time. And most of those um, shows, you know, are, are really hard to get hold of now. You know, you can't... I think Petticoat... Petticoat Junction. Junction is, is on DVD, I think. A slight step down yeah. from, the, from the defenders. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. But yeah, and I thought that played into the whole idea of this director who had really hit on hard times and by the end of his career and by the end of his life, really, when he, when he died um, in 84 was really as low as you could possibly go. Yeah, and I, I've written books about movie directors, and you are were hitting all the right chords right, okay, in, in terms of, of film buffs and people who love film. I'm, I'm sure the book will appeal to them as well. B-movies as well, not, yeah. not, just, um, not just good movies. But the more important research, I think, for your books is the whole business of missing persons and, and, and disappeared persons. And, and last year you did your own podcast, Real Stories, basically, of disappearance, and it was called Missing. And you brought in the kind of people who deal with every facet of that business. It sounded like a fascinating project. Yeah, I mean, it was it was brilliant. I mean, I had, um, I'll be totally honest with you, I had some doubts about it when we were in the sort of planning stages for it, and not doubts about that we could make a great show and that it would be interesting. It was more doubts, selfish doubts, I suppose, in as much as by that point, I'd written six books, and I spent probably eight or nine, maybe even ten years uh, in and around the world of missing people, researching it, and by that time, writing about it. And my worry was that 
we'd do this podcast and it would show me up for the terrible research that I'd done and that I would get found out by people, you know. But actually, it was strangely reassuring and in some ways, well, in a lot of ways, really, really eye-opening. It was reassuring because it backed up a lot of the research that I'd already done on missing people, this idea that... Most missing people, 99% of missing people, are found within uh, a year. Um, but there's still that 1% of people, or 2,500 people every single year, who just vanish into the ether and are never seen again. Now, it's an incredible number, if you think about it, 2,500 people. And, and those are really the sort of people that I was writing about in my books. You know, OK, not real people necessarily, although, as we'll no doubt talk about later on, inspired sometimes by real-life cases. But I wanted to explore how it was possible in in the time we live in, uh, logistically possible, emotionally possible, psychologically possible to disappear. And so the things that we talked about in the podcast, especially when we chatted to Sherry Makara from the Missing Persons Bureau, uh, we chatted to a forensic psychiatrist, a lady who follows the money trail into things like Russian organised crime, uh, biometric specialists, you know, a journalist who has contacts in and around the anonymous hacking group. So very highly organised but very secretive individuals. And what it really brought home to me was not only how difficult it is to disappear, but also what interesting stories there are, uh, what emotionally complex stories there are. And it really underlined, thankfully for me, that um, I was in and around the right ballpark when it came to my research before that. And obviously from having done the podcast now, it's allowed me to make that kind of step on and, and apply some of the stuff we find out. Did this have a big influence? Um, did it make a change in, in the way you approached your books? Yeah. I mean, I think Broken Heart was about half done uh, when I started doing the, the podcast. And I think the areas in which the podcast has had a big influence on the writing of the book are really that area I was talking about just now, the stuff like phones, social media, ATM, surveillance cameras, biometrics, all the stuff that is built in our society to get us found. You know, in all the books... Probably, as far as I can remember, you'll find that the person who's disappeared has probably dumped their phone and hasn't withdrawn any money from a bank account. In my research, you know, that came up a lot and seemed quite obvious. So those weren't massive surprises to me. What really was reassuring was that even if you are able to dump those things and leave those things behind, and I think it's actually pretty hard because we're quite wedded to phones and social media and that kind of stuff, but even if you were prepared to, to leave those things behind, it's that emotional pull of moving away, starting again somewhere, and not having contact with with other people for risk of kind of giving your situation away. I, I think that's one of the things definitely, lessons I definitely took, because I think as humans, we're sort of built to be with other people and, and the draw back to being with other people, even if you're out there on the, your own among strangers, you're then putting yourself at risk and, and that sort of stuff. And so that was one, that was definitely one big lesson for me. You know that I think Sam Spade tells the story. I think it's Sam Spade at the beginning of the Maltese Falcon, but about the story of a man named Flitcraft who he's hired, who's just disappeared one day, and he tracks him down finally um, from San Francisco to somewhere like San Diego, and he you know he asks him why he disappeared, and he said he was walking down the street one day to work, and a beam fell from construction on the roof and it missed him by inches, and he realized that he if he had died. 
what would his life have been and how easy it would have been to have a different life. And so he just walked off and left his family behind and, and went down to San Diego. And, and then the ironic part is that Sam Spade explains that he's living with another family. He's an, he was an accountant in San Francisco. He's an accountant now. He's lived exactly the same life. It hasn't made a bit of difference. Yeah. And, and I think that's the, the interesting thing about, about that the came out of the podcast. I mean, we chatted to a guy called Frank Ahern who helps people disappear for a living, as in women who are being stalked and that sort of stuff. And one of the things he says is, that you don't don't go and try and in your new life you know live in some posh mansion and don't live differently to how you would live differently before or at least try to make it a kind of a bit more of a, a step away from what you were doing but not too much of a step away because you've got to be comfortable with who you are in your new life and you've got to remember the rules of who you are in your new life and if you're suddenly like living in a completely different lifestyle with a ridiculously jazzy name and, you know, all that sort of stuff, it's it's going to get you noticed. And you, and if it doesn't get you noticed through people just watching you and seeing you, it's going to get you noticed when you have conversations with people and, and they ask you, what's your name? And you say, oh, it's um, Tim Weave. I mean, it's, um, you know, Jazzy Jeff or whatever it is, you know, it's like it's... <laughs> So I think it's important to understand the psychology of missing people. And that's certainly the, something that came out in the podcast was that that scenario you were painting where a guy simply falls back into the kind of lifestyle and existence that he was having before. I think that's human nature to an extent. He's very comfortable in that situation. And I think, you know, for missing people, that is one of the areas that help you stay missing. But at the same time, I suppose, in a, in a weird way, hinder you because when people come looking for you, they'll come looking for the things that you had associated with your previous life. What about people who are disappeared as opposed to disappearing, um, you know, as a result of some outside agency, get kidnapped or, kill, or even killed? Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to accept the a proportion of that two and a half thousand people who go missing every year uh, do fall into that category. Uh, the Missing Persons Bureau maintain a database of unidentified remains. And they obviously, when a person goes missing, they can obviously try to match the DNA of the person who's gone missing or some other characteristic of the person who's gone missing to the you know remains they have on their database. Now, some of those remains won't be as a result of someone having been taken or killed or whatever it is, but some will, you know. And so that is a possibility, you know. It is a possibility that that, that happens, and that is one of the reasons why people disappear. But if you think about it, 2,500 people, I mean, even if a big proportion of those end up, you know, they may come back home or they may not, or they may be killed or they may not. It's a big, big melting pot of reasons and motivations Again, something that came out of the podcast chatting to people was it's a very complex, uh, and every case is is certainly amongst that 1% is going to be very different. I mean, amongst the 99%, obviously a lot of those cases are mental health issues or their kids running away from home. But amongst that 1%, it, it really is quite... Um, Quite a you know melting pot of different uh, motivations. And you said you've you've studied so many of these. Are, are there any that that have really gripped you or you know or drawn you to them? Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, there's four in particular that I've over the course of you know seven books, almost eight books now uh, that I'm writing about. Four that have really stuck with me. Um, I, I can talk to talk about them uh, briefly. You may be familiar even with a couple of them. It's it, they're, they're just. They're just really interesting, sometimes quite upsetting cases that have never really 
found a suitable conclusion. Uh, the first one is a guy called Owen Parfit. Now, this is quite a famous story in the part of the country uh, that I come from because it happened in a place called Shepton Mallet, which is about 10 miles from where I live, down in Zermerzet. And um, this was actually a really, really, uh, really, really old case. It was June 1763, so way before DNA or um, CCTV cameras or anything like that. But it's a really interesting disappearance and still is talked about in my part of the world uh, even now. Um, so basically, Parfit was, um, had suffered a stroke, which had, had partially paralysed him. He wasn't able to, to move around by himself. Um, so he lived with his sister. She, she helped him in every, almost every facet of his life, really. And on warm evenings, he'd sit outside his house. And one evening in June, he was sitting outside his house in a nightshirt and sitting on top of a folded greatcoat. Just to underline, this is a guy who was unable to kind of get around by himself. He needed his sister's help. About 7pm, his sister came out to get him and help him back into the house, but he wasn't there. He just completely disappeared. All that was left was this greatcoat on the, the bench he'd been sitting on. So it's this idea that a guy who has the is, is unable to, to move around by himself uh, just can vanish uh, into thin air and no one had the first idea because there were people in the fields around them as well. you know. So there were potential eyewitnesses and no one saw anything. And it's just so mysterious and unexplained. And I just thought it was such an interesting example of people going missing. And I actually provided the jumping off point for my fifth book, Fall from Grace, um, which is about a guy, uh, set in the modern day, but about a guy who he used to work in the Met Police, but him and his wife moved down to Dartmoor after he's done 25, 30 years in London. And they, they have their dream existence in this, this beautiful farmhouse on Dartmoor. And a year into their new life, he goes outside down to the end of his... they got like a veranda on the front of the house to collect firewood, which he does every single day. And this time he doesn't come back. You know, it's that idea that the impossible is kind of possible for a second. Uh, and that's what interested me about Owen Parfit's story. Uh, and there are others too. There's, there's well, What happened at the time? Did I mean... Did they suspect the the sister? Or? I I there, there was never because it's such an old case. It's of not not as kind of much information as you'd like. But one of the interesting things about it was it so baffled investigators and authorities that it was still being investigated locally in down in Somerset as late as 1933. People were trying to find out what had happened to this guy uh, because he was never seen again. If you'd applied modern techniques to that disappearance. Maybe you'd find him, but... I'm seeing a BBC docu yeah, exactly, documentary yeah. in, in front of my eyes. Yeah, I mean, it, it's got that slightly creepy, slightly, you know, air to it, which, which to be honest, a lot of disappearances that remain unsolved do. There's, an, there's another one that she's probably... A lot of people out there may have heard of this one. It was a lady called Treveline Evans who disappeared on June the 16th in 1990. Uh, in Wales. She ran an antique shop and at 12.40 on June the 16th, 1990, she left the shop, put a note in the door that she would be back in two minutes. And the next time she was seen was at 1pm buying an apple and a banana at a local shop. And investigators aren't sure where she went after that, but it's possible she went back to the shop because um, a banana skin was found in the waste bin at the shop. Uh, there was a confirmed sighting of her at 2pm, so an hour and 20 minutes after she put I'll be back in two minutes on her door. And she was never seen again. Literally vanished into thin air. 
And it's such an interesting case, again, because it's those small details, I think, that really appeal to you as a writer. And again, I should underline that at no point am I trying to glamorise this disappearance or the suffering of the, the families involved, because it's terrible. That concept of ambiguous loss, which we can talk about in a second, is really, really terrible. But as a writer, I think it's sometimes your job to tell these stories, to make people aware of these stories. And I think it's those tiny details in this story that really appeals to me. It's this idea that she would put a notice on the door I'll be back in two minutes, obviously with the intention of returning in, you know, maybe not two minutes, but five or ten minutes, of being seen at a shop buying fruit 20 minutes later, which you would assume was probably part of the plan, you know, for her popping out and getting lunch or or whatever it is, uh, and then returning to the shop and then being seen near her home and then never being seen again. It's As a writer, you, you can see the appeal of kind of getting in there and thinking, right, I want to tell this story. I want to imagine what it was that that happened to her. It, it almost suggests misdirection. It, it, it's you know suggests that there's some sort of self awareness there of, of what you're doing. Yeah, and and I think in some cases of missing people, that is exactly what happens. You know, it is that idea that they know that they're you know especially now you know where as we talked about earlier, there's all this technology which is designed to get us fine. Now, misdirection is, you would argue, if you wanted to go missing, is as important as anything. It's that idea of throwing people in one direction and you taking another path, you know. And uh, I just think it's amazing, you know, even in 1990, it's not so long ago that, you know, people can just, you can be seen and then not seen. And there's there's just, you know, there's just this very thin line between... Because I suppose the first thing you would want to do if you wanted to disappear was to make sure everybody thought you didn't want to disappear. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the... We we were talking uh, off air um, earlier, actually, about this, this idea that withdrawing all the money that you've got in your bank account on the day you disappear is a pretty good indication that you want to disappear. Withdrawing small amounts over the course of a year from a cash point, I mean, that's difficult, much more difficult to trace, I would think, to see the pattern in that. I mean, there are... Olivia Allison, the the lady who works for KPMG, who was the forensic accountant we chatted to, her argument, I'm sure, would be it is easy to see the patterns in money because that's people are employed to do that. But I wonder if you took, you know, £20 out one day and then £10 out a couple of days later and then £30 here whether that is easy to trace or not. I think it's difficult to say because we've never done that before, but um, I think all those elements, it's not just about the ATM and taking out money, it's everything else as well. You know, it's phones and surveillance cameras and all those different elements combining. Obviously, these these stories are inspiring you or at least influencing you, you one way or another. Does it make you identify more with the people who are, are disappearing or with your character who has to try to find them? I think both. Well, I hope both anyway. You know, I think for me it's a very important part of writing the books is telling the stories of the people who went missing and the people who got who were left behind as well. For me, Raker is front and centre of the entire experience, clearly. I mean, he is the central character. He is the guy that goes out and tries to find these people. But, you know, the, the people themselves have to be interesting. They have to have reasons for wanting to disappear because of, as we've talked about and seen already during the, the podcast series, it's really hard to do, you know, and it takes a lot of emotional investment to do that. Those are things that need you need to capture uh, in the book and and give a sense of. And so 
The difficulty with writing about missing people, though, is that obviously for a lot of the book, they stay missing. Right. And, and unless you want to give away where they are and what they're doing and how they disappeared. Or why they've disappeared. Or, or why they've disappeared. Yeah, exactly. You have to kind of keep the reader in the best way possible out of the loop for as long as possible. So missing people represents a wonderful opportunity to paint a very grey rather than black and white scenario where the reader isn't entirely sure what's going on, but at the same time presents challenges because you need to make sure the reader doesn't feel like they're being shortchanged in any way, you know. It sounds like, if anything, you you almost have to play down the reality of it because the reality just seems better than fiction in a lot of ways. Stranger than fiction, I guess, would be a better way to describe it. So yeah. People always say, oh, you have to make up these kind of things to make a story. But in, in this case, it would seem like you'd have to leave out bits of it to make the story believable. Yeah, that's right. And, and sometimes there are real-life disappearances that if you put in a book, people would go, nah, I'm not having that. That's just not I just don't believe that there's a, there's a case here, for example, another case that has interested me. And to be honest, interested a lot of people. Uh, there's a great thread on, on Reddit about this where people discuss this case. It's the case, a truly tragic case. It makes my blood run cold even reading about it. But it's uh, about a, a young girl called Tara Calico. Uh, in, on September the 28th, 1988, she left her home in New Mexico to go out on a bike. There are some other details to do with the disappearance, which you can read about more on, on like that Reddit, Reddit thread and other pages like Wikipedia and stuff as well. But th- th- essentially, she was never seen again. Uh, and then there's a weird, like, upsetting twist. Uh, on June the 15th, so what are we talking, October, November? We're talking nine months later, uh, June the 15th, 1989. A woman goes into a convenience store 1,500 miles away in a place called Port St. Joe in Florida. And she finds a Polaroid on the floor in this parking lot. I think it's the woman in the shop, in the convenience store, who, or maybe it's the woman who who found the Polaroid, one of them anyway, remembers that a white van was parked there previously where the Polaroid was. And anyway, she picks up the Polaroid and it's photo showing a teenage girl and a young boy bound and gagged in the back of a van. And it's speculated that this photo may be Tara, as she appears to have the same cowlick and a slightly lazy eye that um, Tara's parents told police she had. She also seemed to have a scar on her leg. And there's also another smaller clue, uh, which is that there's a Virginia Andrews book really close to her, and that was Tara's favourite author. And the boy is believed to be, uh, at the time of the they find the Polaroid, this young kid called Michael Henley, who was a nine-year-old who vanished in New Mexico. But then, later on down the line, his remains are found in the same area as he went missing, and that's 75 miles away from where Tara went missing. Anyway, long story short, the photo appears to be Tara and some other unidentified kid. Never found a trace of the two kids again. Never found a trace of the van. No real explanation as to how the Polaroid ended up there, although we can obviously speculate. And then there were two other photos found, one in 1989, also in 1989, at a construction site in California. So we're talking about way over on the other side of the country now, in which a girl possibly matching Tara's description uh, is pictured with duct tape over her mouth. But it's a really blurry picture and the police aren't able to uh, really determine too much. And then, again, another picture in 1990 of a girl, again, vaguely matching Tara's description, although uh, police believe it may have been someone's idea of a joke. So 
you've got all these kind of moving pieces in this case. You know, for any parent, it just makes your blood run cold, even thinking about it. But it's just fascinating in the sense that in this case, it's not even like the person has completely vanished into thin air. Well, they have, but there are clues left behind. These fairly significant clues. You know, the Polaroid is a pretty big clue. Presumably they found no fingerprints on it or anything else. And It, it almost sounds like taunting some, yeah. someone leaving, leaving little things just just to um, upset those who are looking and and that's the interesting that's an interesting observation because what happened in 2009 so a long long time after tw- what 20 years later is in Port St. Joe, Florida, which is where the convenience store was that this Polaroid is found. A police chief there received two letters from Albuquerque in New Mexico of a young boy who resembled the boy in the photographs of Tara. Um, and the case has just been reopened in 2013, but they haven't found anything yet. It's just a... It's just a... I mean, if you put that in a book, people would be going... I mean, I, I guess people would believe it, but it's it's it, it does sound like the sort of thing that you'd you'd write about. And it's such a fascinating and yet at the same time deeply disturbing case uh, and it's fascinated people online you can like i say you can go onto forums like reddit and see lots of people's speculation on what's going on and i suppose as a fiction writer like you inevitably have to close the circle one way or another you have to come up with a some sort of solution that's right and i think that's the question you actually get asked a, a lot as a crime writer is how do you marry off the fact that a lot of these cases don't have a happy ending you know a lot of these cases Missing persons cases um, remain unresolved, you know, like this one I've just described, uh, despite all the clues, despite all this whoever it is sick idea of kind of taunt the police and whatever. Uh, it's never been solved. And yet as fiction readers, we want that sense of closure because in real life we don't get that sense of closure sometimes. So it's a very difficult balance because on one side you want to treat readers with the respect they deserve and not always present a really nice, happy, bow-tied ending. Uh, on the other side, you know, I'm, I as a reader, when terrible things have happened during the course of a book, you do sometimes need those light and happy moments right at the end. One of the other interesting things about the book, you, you get the hint in it. I mean, as a writer, you can't present how boring investigating actually is in reality, um, how much information you just have to sift through, how much time you spend or sitting and watching or whatever. But you do get a hint of that in Broken Heart uh, as as to how much dead time there is and how much frustration there is in being an investigator. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's one of the things that comes up most often when you talk to during research stages, you chat to people in and around law enforcement and who work in the agencies involved in not just finding missing people, but solving crimes, is that it's a lot of that. You know, it's a lot of really tedious sitting there going through hours and hours of surveillance footage or sitting there reading through hours and hours of transcripts or, or whatever it is. You know, a lot of that it's part of investigative work, you know, and it's very difficult to sidestep that when you're writing a thriller. That, I mean, mine aren't police procedurals in the strictest sense of the word, but they have a certain procedure to them. He has to follow a certain path in order to get to the answers. And obviously he's looking through the case files and all that sort of stuff as well. So all that sort of stuff you need to broach. And it's a real, really difficult balance between presenting the realities of working these sorts of cases versus keeping readers kind of turning the pages. So I'm glad that you picked it up because it means that you do get the sense that he's really sinking himself into the work. It helps that he's got, like like so many do nowadays, a pet 
hacker. Yeah, know, exactly. That he, can, yeah. that he can call call on to do the that's he, right the heavy lifting. I mean, that is it is the old typical Hollywood kind of shortcut to get an answers, but it's very very difficult if you're on the periphery of a police investigation or if your character isn't working inside the police to get those answers quickly and, and keep the momentum of the book going. You know, um, one of the reasons I didn't make him a police officer is because I didn't want him to have to wait a day to get a warrant to go into somewhere. I wanted the kind of momentum to keep on going. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is a short, it's a shortcut, really, to get to answers quickly. But I always make sure that those elements of the book, the books where he goes to his hacker friend and says, I need information on this, is always front-loaded. It's always at the front of the book. So readers don't feel cheated when you get to the end of the book. The, the answers that he gets at the end of the book, he's really had to work and for. You know, The thing that occurred to me while I was reading the book, at one point it reminded me of Serial, the radio show that, that tracked a killing and, and um, whether the, the, an innocent man was convicted or not. And, and it occurred to me that if you were a fan, say, of true crime books, which really had you know a huge boom sort of in the 80s, 90s, and, or, or moved over a little bit into radio and into television. I mean, the OJ, there's been a couple of OJ programs now that are immensely fascinating, even though everybody had so much of OJ, you know, all the OJ they could handle. And what the appeal of that and the appeal of of your books, I think, is relatively close because, as we've just seen in the last discussion, reality is a big part of what you're doing. True crime or true disappearance is a big part of that. What What do you think at the root is the appeal of that? I suppose it's, for most of us, we'll go through our lives never coming into contact with anything remotely connected with disappearances, murders, what have you, crimes uh, generally. I mean, I've been, I spent 38 years on this earth and I've never been inside a police station other than in the courses of research, you know. So for most of us, we'd go, we go our whole lives not knowing about it, but we're fascinated by the processes involved in being a police officer, being in and around an investigation. We're fascinated by how people make the leap from being the kind of person that I think I am and I'm sure you are which is fairly law abiding and you know like pretty <laughs> roller, <laughs> or maybe be, not you can't be that sure <laughs> yeah, that's right fairly law abiding maybe and you know generally pretty nice to everyone and you know pretty congenial to to the point at which you know you make that final terrible leap into taking another person's life I mean what is that I think for a, a lot of people it's that the psychology behind it. How do you how do you do that? What makes you want to do that? It's kind of so beyond our comprehension, and yet we're so fascinated by it that we need to see through crime novels and through and true crime is a great way of showing in reality how it works. You know, in you know stuff like Making a Murderer, and we were talking off air about the Jinx, which I think is a brilliant documentary, and and that sort of stuff. It's it's you know you watch these. Uh, almost open mouths because these people are so far removed from the people in your own existence that you don't you don't recognize them and yet we're absolutely fascinated by them it's it's cathartic a sense of schadenfreude yeah um you know it yeah. isn't it isn't happening to me but isn't yeah. it isn't it horrible I, I think you're right i definitely think it's cathartic in a lot of ways I mean, there's a age-old joke, I suppose, amongst uh, the crime writing community that the crime writers, or most crime writers, anyways, uh, are really, really lovely people and and congenial and and friendly because they get everything 
all the darkness in there that exists in their heads out onto the page and we don't store any of it back. Maybe it's slightly to do with that, like through these documentaries and these true crime TV shows and all that kind of stuff. We're getting that darkness out through this medium. Tim Weaver gets an awful lot of the darkness out. His latest novel, Broken Heart, has been published by Penguin and the chart-topping podcast, Missing is still up there on the internet. Thanks, Tim. Thanks very much. Thanks to Michael for coming in to talk about Broken Heart, Missing, and some of the real-life cases I've been so fascinated with and that got me so interested in missing people in the first place. When you write full-time, you spend so much of your working life on your own that the things you do automatically, the research, the planning, putting all that into action and onto the page, becomes an instinctive process. You don't necessarily take the time to stand back and analyse it, how you work and what you take on board. And both consciously and subconsciously, I took on so much during the first season of Missing. Taking everything I've learned from the making of Missing, I wanted to attempt something completely new for the show. I wanted to challenge myself to put into practice all the things I've taken on board during the course of talking to experts, and I wanted to try and replicate the intense emotional tug-of-war that missing people experience. That pressure of being someone else with a different story and a different background. That juggling act. That feeling of extricating yourself from the people who orbit your life suddenly and without warning. Ultimately, there's really only one way for me to prove how difficult it is to disappear and what huge emotional strain is undertaken by the person going missing, and that's to do it myself. Next week on Missing. He's doing it again. I definitely don't like the way he's looking over it. And it's my own fault because I was so unconvincing yesterday. The guy is right outside my camper van again. What is he doing now?